0: Hello everyone, welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Meeting in Athens, Ohio or remotes thereabout. I'm your host, Scott Tetsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. You know, over several episodes going back several years, one of the topics that has been reoccurring on Teaching Matters is the use of various types of simulations to help students understand complex processes and to learn material. Um, One of the ways that we've explored that is, for example, through the use of augmented And virtual reality, which of course is very high quality, but also poses some logistical challenges because it does require specialized equipment and therefore may not be easy to scale to larger numbers of students. So today we're going to be exploring that topic of simulations, but from a slightly different experience, um, my guest today is Dr. Mary Burkery, who is the faculty program director in history and cornerstones at Excelsior College in Albany, New York. Mary, thank you for being on the program today.
1: Thanks for having me, Scott.
0: So as I mentioned in the setup, you know, we've talked about simulations on Teaching Matters quite a bit because, of course, uh, it's, it's a growing emphasis for teachers who want to have high-impact pedagogy. Before we get into the details of the simulations that you've created for your history students, maybe you could start by talking about the courses that you teach at Excelsior and why you looked into using simulations in the first place. And then later, as, we, as our dialogue goes on, we'll talk more about the simulations themselves.
1: Yeah, sure. So the course that we ended up adding the simulations to is called the History of World War One, um, History 350. It's an upper level gen ed course. It's very popular with non-majors, but some of our history majors take, take it as well. Um, I also occasionally teach courses in women's history and some of our other uh, war related courses. Um, our students at Excelsior are non-traditional adult learners. Um, they're often we have a high proportion of military and veteran students who are very interested in the history of war. Um, So that certainly impacts the way we chose to develop the simulations um, and how we wanted them to fit into the course and what we were looking for.
0: Before you uh, created these simulations, what was the typical way that you taught students and especially this demographic of students in your classes? I mean, was it primarily lecture video based or what did you do before this?
1: Yeah, so um, we all of our courses are asynchronous and online, so they don't have traditional, you know, classroom lectures. Um, instead, we use discussion boards. We use some, um, you know, audio visual lecture uh, methods. Um, but really, a lot of the methods for teaching history, you know, historically um, are more passive. So reading um, a lot of primary and secondary sources and then analyzing and discussing those, uh, completing independent research, uh, maybe watching some films, documentaries, that sort of thing. Um, we had tried to engage with active learning as well. Um, we often see this done in history through role playing exercises or through debates where students can take a position in the past and then, um, you know, debate it with their classmates. But simulations offered a similar type of active learning where you can ask students to kind of step into the shoes of somebody in the past and really be the actor making changes to history instead of somebody just kind of passively reading about history unfolding.
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, and as a uh, poli sci minor in uh, my undergraduate program, I remember the way that you're describing this class is very well. Um, sometimes, when you innovate pedagogy, there's an inflection point that sort of just causes you to need to innovate and move towards it. And uh, and then in other cases, it's a natural evolution of you know a, a person's interest. Can you kind of describe, you know, the setting? where you went from teaching the way that you used to teach into starting to explore the use of simulations. Was there something that caused that or was it just something that you evolved into naturally?
1: Yeah, so a little bit of both. Um, I've always been someone who's been kind of experimental with different methods. Um, Excelsior College, where I work is, since we are already an online institution and we have been since you know the late 90s, um, we've always kind of been on the forefront of online technologies. Um, trying to figure out what works works best for our students who are adults, Um, you know, knowing that they have limited bandwidth and possibly not the latest technology. How can we still leverage the fact that we're in a digital space um, to bring them the best kind of learning experience? Um, And this class and the use of simulations here was part of a larger project at the college on game-based learning in general. So um, it was part of a cohort of other uh, courses as well that went through this, um, you know, six month, maybe nine month process to figure out where do simulations and games fit in? Um, how can we best leverage them for our students? What are the types of courses that would most benefit from that kind of experimental design? And then following up afterward with how they work um, and how they're being received by students.
0: Absolutely. And how, how big, you maybe mentioned this in in a previous answer, but how big is the 300 level course that that you integrated this into?
1: Um, so we, all of our courses are usually about 20 to 25 students, and that's as big as it gets. Uh, but what we do at Excelsior is we can easily kind of clone and replicate sections. So this course does run six times a year. We have eight week terms. Uh, so it runs six times a year. And we often have two or three sections of the course. So they're never in kind of a large lecture style course with 50 or 100 other students, but we might have 50 or 60 students in the course at any one time.
0: So, So is it fair to assume that in a given year, these simulations might be experienced by 300 plus students or am I way off on that?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's correct. Somewhere between probably 200 and 300 uh, depending on the year. So most of our students are asynchronous online, but I should mention we also do have this course at our sergeant's major academy courses, uh, which are on, on the base at Fort bliss in El Paso. Um, And the students still play the games, the simulations or the games, um, online, but then they're able to have in-person discussions with the other sergeant's major uh, students there as well.
0: Yeah, that's great. So let's turn to learning a little bit more about the simulations. I I had a chance um, earlier this afternoon to explore some of them a little bit, though really just superficially in all honesty. Can you talk about the three simulations that you created um, in sort of a general sense so that listeners can get a sense of, you know, sort of what the guiding narrative was for each one of those?
1: Yeah, sure. And let me start by mentioning that I sometimes call them games. so You'll hear me slip between simulations and games. Um, I really think they straddle both worlds. You know, they were part of that game-based learning project. Uh, but in some ways, they don't fit the classic model of what a game is. There's no direct competition between students. Um, in some of the activities, there's no clear winning result. Um, so they might be better, uh, more apt de- described as a simulation. But, um, you know, I sometimes slip between the language and that's how we talk about it to students. Um, but In each of the activities, um, you're playing as a person from the era and you're engaging in kind of back and forth conversations, uh, replies to letters and telegrams, conversations with your advisors. Um, The students start with a situation report that orients them to where in history you are, what's already happened, and where are you going from here. Um, And as they choose to respond to each of these conversations in different ways, um, they get different kind of branching responses that lead them off in different directions with different outcomes. So um, to make it really simple, if you remember those choose your own adventure books from the 1990s, um, which might be dating myself a little bit, it's not dissimilar to that in terms of being able to choose alternative paths that lead you um, in a different direction. Um, So there's three games in the course. We put them at at key moments where we wanted students to do a little bit more active engagement, and we wanted to get at some critical uh, historical thinking skills um, that we wanted to pull out of each of these games. Um, In the first one, they're playing as the Kaiser of Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm, at that key moment uh, known as the July crisis, right after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, right before the war starts. So they're engaging in conversations, um, you know, with foreign leaders and their own advisors, and they're discovering as they go through it, there's multiple outcomes of this game, but there's no true winning solution. Uh, So in some cases, you might be able to prevent a massive two-front war uh, like we ended up having, but you might lose the support of your advisors if you don't do that, or you might find yourself living in exile, um, and what's really clever in this game is that you have the ability to give away too much information to the enemy at an inopportune time, um, which was really a key um, idea by the subject matter expert who helped me create these games, named Dr. John Riley, um, in, in helping out students understand that, yes, you do have individual agency as a character making an impact on history, but so do other people. Um, and not everyone has the same motivations as you, and you can give them information that's going to benefit them and not you. So that's the first game. In um, the second one, they play as a general. Can I
0: stop you just for a second before you sure. go to the second one? Because it was a question that was coming into my mind as you were talking about that. So, you know, one of the interesting things about um, simulations or games like this, and particularly the way that you've constructed it, is that you can ask a student to put themselves into the perspective of a historic figure, but then mm-hmm. to make decisions that run counterfactual to what actually occurred in history. So so when you're asking a student to put themselves into the perspective of Wilhelm, do you have to set the stage for that in a way that um, I'm just trying to think about, OK, student, you're going to be the the leader of Germany and you get to make decisions that will impact the outcome of a war. Mm-hmm. That's touchy. Right. In some ways, um, mm-hmm. because of you know what we know happened historically. How do you set that up in a way that sort of frees the student to be accepting of putting themselves in that perspective? Does that does that make sense as a question? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, counterfactualism is something that all uh, historians deal with. How do you um, teach students and not let them engage in that too much, but also walk the line of of, um, understanding the concept of contingency, which is something I really try to get at with these games? which is the idea that history was not some sort of pre-written story that had a known ending. Nothing was inevitable. Um, So we we often get students coming into this course and and all of our courses really that would consider themselves history buffs. So they've read a million uh, stories about World War I um, and they tend to think of it almost as like watching a movie unfold. Right. This happened then this happened then this happened. Um, And that's, you know, that's that's not quite accurate. Right. So we know that everything that happened was a product of the context and the circumstances and the choices made by the actors involved. So what I want to get at without getting too counterfactual is understanding that everything that happened was a product of its circumstance and other changes. Things could have happened if people had made different choices. So by putting them in the shoes of the game, you could see, you know, if the Kaiser doesn't do this in this situation, it may not have led to World War One. Uh, we don't know for sure. Right. But we also know that he was constrained by the context he was in. Right. So uh, we never truly get to a kind of peaceable outcome where everyone is is proud of the hero Kaiser Wilhelm, who prevents World War One from happening. So there's no kind of rewriting of history that's uh, loose from from reality. Uh, but I do want them to really question the issue of inevitability. Right. That nothing is inevitability. There's no fate. Right. Um, everything is a product of agency. Um, and choice, not just yours, but other people's as well.
0: That, that was a really awesome answer. I just got to say that. <laughs> <I> enjoyed, <laughs> Thanks. enjoyed that. So let, let, go ahead and go through um, the premise of the other two games for us.
1: Sure. So um, in the second game, they're playing as a, a general on the Western front. We don't tell them what country uh, the general is from. But the idea is we wanted to really capture what it was like in the stalemate of the trenches of, uh, of World War I, um, you know, juxtaposing that drudgery and boredom for months on end with the intensity of the violence when it did happen. Um, and we also wanted them to get a, an understanding of how World War One was kind of bridging a gap between the 19th and 20th century in terms of the tactics of warfare. So you have them with the ability of choosing, you know, cavalry and bayonets alongside airplanes and tanks, you know, these new tactics of war Um, and understanding that all of these new technologies didn't always work the way they were intended because they were, they were pretty new. Um, And the other thing we want them to grapple with in the second game is the ethics of using poison gas um, this is a critical moment of understanding the idea of historical empathy, which is judging the past on its own merit and in its own context, rather than to our 21st century mindset, where we have, you know, the benefit of hindsight of knowing what happened uh, when we did use poison gas in the past, uh, knowing that it's a war crime today, the amount of suffering it caused, and um, But understanding in that era, so if you were a general who's um, under pressure from command, um, you might be recalled from your post, if you don't end this stalemate, you know that the other combatant nations are using it. Does that change whether or not you were likely to use poison gas on your enemy? Um, Also knowing, you know, the wind might change direction and you might blow it back on your own troops because it didn't often work the way it was supposed to. Uh, So this ends up resulting in a really fascinating discussion afterward between students of did you or did you not choose to use poison gas and and what outcomes did you face because of that. Um, And then there's a third game where they play as President Wilson of the United States after the Zimmerman telegram has been sent right before U.S. entry uh, into the war. Um, And so this one really takes that role of a simulation um, in the sense that there is only one outcome. So a critical feature of a game is that there's a winnable outcome, right? Here, the only outcome is that you as Wilson are going to ask the U.S. Congress for a declaration of war. So as a participant in the simulation, what you can affect with your choices is how it's going to be received by the American public and by Congress and how prepared the United States is going to be for a war. So that highlights the need for consensus building in a democracy in contrast to the first game uh, where they're playing as as Kaiser Wilhelm of an empire. Um, So you're going to need the support of labor leaders, for example, to prevent strikes. You're going to need to build an army. Are you going to do that through a draft or by asking for volunteers? Um, You're going to need the buy in of suffragists. Um, And you're going to need to talk to a journalist and consider how can you use the media to your advantage through propaganda without abridging freedom of the press. So as they go through that and they play it multiple times, they'll discover uh, there's no way for me to not ask Congress for a declaration of war, but I can make sure it goes uh, more smoothly. And then the outcome is that the United States is prepared to go to war um, afterward.
0: So um, backing up now so that we understand what the three simulations are and as you noted, these are flowed into the curriculum for the course. When, when you launch the first, uh, do you launch these all at the same time or do you sequence them as part of different units? Um, so how does the how do these fit into a, a basic, you know, daily schedule or or weekly schedule for units in your course?
1: Yeah, so they're launched one at a time. Um, They play them during the week when they get to that chronological point. So um, they're actually in weeks one, three and five in an eight week course, if you can imagine how that might be structured. Mm -hmm. So they'll play the game, they go through that participation and then they engage immediately afterward in a discussion with their peers where they're contextualizing the games with the readings, with the films, with the other resources in the course to kind of break down the larger context.
0: When you use something like a simulation or a game, and as you noted, there's multiple possible outcomes from an instructor standpoint where you know that you have certain learning objectives that have to be met, how do you account for the fact that um, the games have multiple branches and st- each student can conceivably get to a different place at the end of their simulation, but yet you still want there to be a commonality, commonality of learning? How do, you, how do you reconcile those two things?
1: Yeah. So um, it's probably atypical in our case, the way we do it. We don't grade students on the outcome of the simulation because that's not actually where the learning occurs. Um, You know, two students could get totally different outcomes or they could each play it multiple times to get multiple outcomes. um, And that's not really going to be the key skill we're trying to get at from the game. Um, so we we give them kind of a nominal score for participation, but the grading is actually happening during the discussion where they're unpacking what they learn. And that's critical to me because I want to make sure they're learning those historical thinking skills. So understanding contingency, historical empathy, engaging in that active learning, uh, pairing it with the readings and so forth. Um, so they're not actually being scored on any particular outcome. And that makes it a little easier to to break down a grade.
0: What What types of assessment? Um, approaches do you use? Do you, is this more of an open-ended type of assessment, um, or does it also lend itself to closed response and, uh, questions and those sorts of things?
1: In terms of how the students, um... yeah, correct, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's all assessed for, on the students' end of their learning through the discussion boards when they're unpacking oh, sure. it, um, and also they they complete an independent research project um, throughout the course on a topic that came up in one of the games. So they have a chance to kind of do a deeper dive on poison gas or on Wilson as a wartime president or whatever the case might be um, to kind of you know add in the the larger context and do some some research and, and writing skills there too.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When a student engages in um, any of the particular uh, games or simulations, about how much time do you as an instructor assume that they are spending, if they're doing an adequate job, you know, working working through the problem?
1: Yeah, so that's one of the the real advantages of Excelsior being an online school is that we're really data rich. So we actually have data on how long they spend on the platform playing the game. Uh, we tell them they have to play once. and We designed each of the games to be completed, um, you know, adequately in 10 or 20 minutes, right? So, but what you see is students spending 45 minutes or an hour or an hour and a half playing through multiple times. So they might play it two, three, four, or five times um, because they want to see the different kind of choices they could have got or different outcomes they could have gotten if they made different choices. Um, And that becomes kind of part of the fun of going through it is figuring out how many different outcomes can I get to if I play more peaceably or more aggressively, um, you know, depending on what it is. Um, and that's really an indication to me of how the games are working, because our students are busy adult learners with a lot of competing demands on their time. You know, they're working full time. They have childcare responsibilities. So if they're choosing to sit still for an hour and a half and play a game, you know, it must be compelling. And, and I think probably a little more compelling than spending that same amount of time uh, just reading a textbook, for example.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, when. I mean, you, you've had the opportunity, it sounds like, to uh, run this class with different types of students. I mean, there's a commonality among your students, as you mentioned, about being adult learners and asynchronous, but you also mentioned that you have a demographic d- demographic of students that are in the sergeant major program, and I assume you have mm-hmm. other types of working professionals. Based upon your experience in using these simulations, have you noticed that the discussions are different when, for example, the sergeant majors would bring a very different set of prior knowledge um, about some of the related topics in these scenarios than say somebody that was working in private business their entire life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, to some extent. Yeah, the, our military and veteran students tend to love the second game where they're playing as a general, uh, because I think that's that's the territory that they're most familiar with. Right. It's assessing different options for gathering intelligence and and launching an attack. Uh, so they tend to get really interested in that. But I think any student really um, can get interested in the decision making process uh, uh, of being a leader um, and, and think through that. It tends to be an interesting uh, conversation regardless of the students involved. I would say probably almost half of the students who take the class each term are military or veteran students to some uh, extent. So that does really shape the discussion. Um, but you know, the civilian students certainly um, draw their own conclusions from it as well.
0: Yeah, totally. So your course has specific learning outcomes, but uh, it, as an instructor, of course, you, you're also paying attention to, especially through discussions, things like critical thinking and creativity and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It, when I was, you know, going through these uh, briefly before uh, getting ready for the podcast to start, it seems to me that students going through these games or simulations, they're dealing with a bunch of messy data, right? I mean, they're they're getting stuff in textual format, they're having to interpret it, draw their own inferences about the meanings, and then and then using those inferences to guide um, the the branches in the unfolding narrative. Have you noticed, um, you know, how this type of learning approach? Um, does impact higher order thinking like critical thinking and creativity um, in addition to the, the regular learning objectives of your course.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, critical thinking, that's always that key term that's so hard to define, but you know it when you see it, right? Um, you know, students making kind of nuanced uh, arguments and, and discussions. And um, one place where I think I really see that and and also the idea of historical empathy and contingency, which are related kind of critical thinking skills as it relates to history um, I see that come into play where they discuss the inevitability of World War One. So that's a question that we pose to them of, you know, was World War One inevitable after, you know, X point, um, you know, the point of no return, right? Um, and after they've played that first game, they tend to make really nuanced arguments about individual agency and the consequence of choices, rather than this whole sense of, you know, uh, Europe was a powder keg and it was destined to happen, right? Um, and I think that only comes with the critical thinking of being the actor there, making the choices rather than just reading about this happened then this happened then this happened in kind of a linear fashion the way you would uh, traditionally through primary and secondary source readings
0: mm-hmm. let's let's turn a little bit to some of the nuts and bolts. So you know because of the nature of Excelsior you you probably have resources that maybe people at, at more of a brick and mortar um, uh, face-to-face university wouldn't have. what what is the process that you went through? Um, Both from, you know, developing the narrative with your content expert to working with a designer um, and, and others to go from idea to script to actually launching this.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I am not a gaming expert at all or simulations expert. And so that was a fun process for me. It was the first time I'd ever been through it. Uh, we started I started with a subject matter expert, uh, John Riley, who I mentioned, who's both a gaming expert and a historian. So he was absolutely critical, um, you know, for me not not being um, an expert in the kind of game based learning. Uh, field um, And we worked with a company called Muzzy Lane, um, who is their experts in educational gaming and immediately understood what we were going for in terms of the look and feel, you know, it can't be juvenile can't make light of war given our population, um, you know it can't be high bandwidth. Um, And so we worked with them for probably about six months uh, to figure out, you know, what do we want the story to be? Uh, Where does it go within this course? Um, And then, you know, we worked with their authoring tool. So we're able to actually edit the game ourselves. It's not all going through Muzzy Lane. Um, And then, you know, you're adding the conversations in, you're adding these branching um, routes that that it takes once students make the decisions. Um, You know, sort of storyboarding that way through their authoring tool to get to a point where it felt uh, like it was a good end product. Um, And, you know, on the design end, we would send them images of, you know, here's the historical uh, figures, the pictures of them uh, that we want replicated in this game. Um, or fictional characters, what they might want to look like. Um, and they would create all of that for, for us. So it was a long and complicated process. But, um, you know, in the end, it was actually quite easy to, to edit the tool much, much simpler than I would have thought it would be uh, to create something like that.
0: About how long did it take to create each of the each of the simulations?
1: Uh, probably about a month or so for each one. Once we actually got down to the nuts and bolts of, uh, you know, what does the conversation look like? What are we pulling from? And and what does, where does the story go, go from here?
0: Mm-hmm. For for your course, what you said was, if, or if I recall correctly, an eight week course. Is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Is it is it your opinion that three simulations is about the maximum that you can fit in, or do you think there's space for more? I'm trying to think about, you know, if I was a teacher that wanted to you know, really buy into simulations for my own course, I think you could probably Mm -hmm. overdo it, um, or you could also underdo it. I mean, what do you think a a sweet spot is for uh, time of the course relative to the number of simulations?
1: Yeah, three, three is probably the max you would want to do. Um, and the way that we have it set at the front end of the course, I think works well, too, so that they can build those critical thinking skills early on in the course, and then they could use the second half of the course to digest it somewhat. And they're doing that through that independent research project. So, you know, we needed, we knew we needed to get at outcomes of historical research and writing. Um, that weren't going to be uh, you know, solved solely through games. So we needed to include other uh, kinds of activities and assignments. Um, and we wanted them to build on the game somehow. So if we kind of clogged up the second half of the course with more games, there might not have been the space for, for reflection and for research and writing as well.
0: So moving forward, um, are there things that you've become more excited about, whether that be topics for new simulations or other ways that you would want to integrate it from a pedagogy standpoint into your course?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would love to add more simulations or games to other courses. Uh, We have a course on the American Revolution that I think, um, you know, doing a simulation related to the Constitutional Convention would be really fascinating. Um, we have courses in kind of social and cultural history, things like African-American history or women's history, where you could put them kind, kind of in a, in the shoes of a, a person in an era, right. To see how their choices are constrained by their circumstances, right. And, and what choices and actions they can make to affect history from there. Um, I think that would be really fascinating as well to get it away from kind of a, a war, um, perspective, you know, simulations don't have to go hand in hand with war, um, I, I, You know, anywhere you can add in this kind of active learning, regardless of whether it's done through a simulation or a more traditional means of role playing, um, I think is, is critical to helping students learn history.
0: As you've used these simulations and this approach to pedagogy, are there any lessons that you've learned where in retrospect you would have done something different or um, the way that you approached it with your students or anything like that?
1: I don't think so. You know, we, we, so we, these games have been in there since 2016 and we have not changed them since then. Um, We have changed the course pretty drastically. we have changed the readings and changed the, uh, you know, the directions for assignments and discussion prompts and so forth. Um, But as we do that, every time, you know, I come back to these games and I think, should I update or change the games? And, and um, every time I come to it, I think, no they're working just fine for to get at the the skills and the ideas that we want to get at so um no i I think it went about as well as it could have and it's working for students fairly well
0: are these simulations available for people outside of excelsior to be able to look at and experience
1: Yeah um they're not on our website but I do have demo links that I could share with you and you could put on the on the podcast description if that's something you'd like
0: yeah, absolutely. So I've got the I've got the links to each of the simulations, and so for mm-hmm. listeners, if you look in the text that accompanies the podcast, um, will, you'll be able to follow through and, and take a look at these. I think they're really great examples of what a simulation can look like. And you know, one of the beauties of them, as I said in the opening, is that it doesn't really take any specialized equipment. I mean, any browser is going to get you onto this. Um, is it mobile friendly as well, Mary?
1: It is. Yeah. And that was really important to me. A lot of our students are rural or on military bases. They don't have really high quality internet. So it's the ease of use is is, uh, very good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think listeners that want to take a look at what a very scalable simulation could look like and, and and feel like if you were using with your students. I think these are great examples of that. Well, Mary, I, I really appreciate you coming on to the program and talking about these. And um, again, I, I really applaud the work that went into this. It, it looks like um, this is the type of learning experience that students would find enjoyable because it's not a predetermined outcome, which I think you know, we all recognize as being not quite as fun, but Mm -hmm. I think that it really tackles complex thinking, you know, to be able to work your way through it. And so I I really applaud the work that was put into these.
1: No, thank you. I appreciate it.
0: So my guest today was Dr. Mary Berkeley. She is the Faculty Program Director in History and Cornerstones at Excelsior College in Albany, New York. Uh, Thank you for being on the podcast, Mary. Thank you, Scott absolutely and thank you for listening to teaching matters this program is produced by WOUB public media you can always listen at woub.org listen we're also available on all of the popular podcasting apps like google play itunes and of course npr1 you can contact staff of the podcast with ideas questions or comments through our facebook page simply search for teaching matters podcast in facebook and reach out to us if you have ideas or comments our audio engineer and associate producer is adam rich i'm scott titchworth your host have a great day